0: In progress. Okay, good morning, everybody. We are uh, about to learn together a really fascinating topic about an incident that occurred 98 years ago. And we learned about this actually recently, but I'd like to Somebody suggested that we, we spend a little more time learning about this now in a little more depth. And the topic is the first flag, an incident that occurred in 1925, which I think is very important for us here today. Um, I'd like to first of all, before we start learning about this incident and and it's and its Torah ramifications. I'd like to 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 thank our sponsors today. We have a number of sponsors who are uh, who are with us today. And the first is I'd like to thank David and Irene Feuer, who are sponsoring the, upon the York side of David's mother, Ms. Rachel Bas Alter Chaim Binyamin um, And at the age of she at the age of eight, escaped from Germany, one day to Kristallnacht, a family hidden Berg, the Berg, the Belgian forest for a year until they secured passage to America. And in spite of many great hardships, she created. The most inviting, loving, warm home imaginable for herself, her, for her husband, and her and and uh, her children. The Shabbos table and the Yom Tov table was always f- joyful and full of guests. She loved to cook, and uh, her cooking was world, re- world renowned, especially in the family. We also want to thank Bar- Yosak and Barbara Lehman Siegel, who are sponsoring in memory of Jamie Lehman, Chaim Menachem Ben Rav Menashe, Rafael Vissara, for those who remember Jamie. Was uh, was actually the first Bar Mitzvah in this shul. Young Israel Lauren Cedarhurst, um, and he passed away too young at the age of 32 in our community. If you so, for those who remember who, who grew up in this neighborhood, remember Jamie Azar well. like Aiden. We want to also thank Brian and Ilana Lipman who are sponsoring today's learning. Nishmas Chaya Bas Mendel Hakohen. That is Brian's mother, who Brian as describes uh, as a tada, uh, really a tzaddikus, um, one of the most giving. Um, person completely selfless, always doing for others with very little time for herself. She was very quiet but extremely accomplished. Everything she did was for her family. She was a wonderful mother, a wife, an amazing grandmother, and she was deeply loved and would be sorely missed. Um, the, the, the world would be a better place if everybody had mothers like, like Brian's mother, Nishmasai Adan. I want to also, also thank Barbara and, y- and Yitzhak Siegel, who, bo- who are. <laughs> it's okay, I'm an Barbara and Yitzhak Siegel. No. Uh, Jack, I'm so sorry. Uh, this the, 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 the. There we go. <laughs> I apologize. We have two Barbara Siegels who are sponsoring today's shira, so I, I, I gave them the same husband. Um, <laughs> um, Barbara and Jack Siegel. I was sponsoring for, for Barbara's mother's yard site, Frida Bas Avraham Moshe, and their grandniece's yard sides, Liara, Devora Bas Shlomo, Alema Mashal, and Neshama should have an aliyah. We also finally thank Moshe and Paula Weinstein upon the side of his father, Asher Anshul um, ben Moshe Alav HaShalem, who was born in 1902 in a village, small village near Minsk in Belarus, R- Russia. His family lived in a farm and had a successful butcher business. During the t- his teen years he became a baki in Talmud and was invited to join the share of Rav Elkanan Yass- Wasserman. His learning was cut short by the invasion of the Cossacks in his village, and his family was able to escape to the U.S. in 1920. During the 1930s, he worked in the garment industry, and there were years that he held um, almost 50 jobs. As his bosses insisted, he worked on Shabbos, which he refused. He ultimately retired to Jerusalem as Niftar in 1981. Mishmosei um, Eden. Remarkable people that we're going to be learning for this morning. So we're, we're, let's, let's get, get to, to the event that occurs in 1925, but to appreciate that, we need to start a little bit earlier. And what does that mean a little earlier? You just start in the time of World War I. During World War I, what happened was, um, as we know, that the, the area of what was called the district area of Palestine, as, as it was known, that was the name that was given around the times of the Romans, not to a group of people culturally, but just to, as, a, as, an, as an area, um, um, which was the area of Judea before that, um, so in this area, it was actually ruled by the Ottomans. And it was ruled by the Ottomans for 400 years, since the 1500s. And generally speaking, as the Ottomans were successful, the Jews enjoyed prosperity and religious freedoms. As the Ottoman Empire started to sink, and it was a, a slow-sinking process, economically, militarily, losing, lo- losing borders, then, of course, it became more difficult for the Jewish, the Jewish minority in the area of Israel. And then more and more kept coming from Europe. And that, that exacerbated... The, the 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 issue as well. So by the time that World War One rolled in, um, the 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 Jews were now so to speak caught up in global politics. So um, David Ben Gurion and Chaim Weizmann um, so realizing that they are um, they are citizens of the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman Empire was in, involved in the battle. Which side did the Ottomans join in that battle in the World War One? Yes. So yeah, so actually it was called in those days the Central Powers. Um, the axis was World War II, but it was a very similar constellation. So Germany, of course, you know, uh, was uh, you know uh, the the head of the se- or the the core of the Central Powers, and so the Ottomans joined that side. And Remember that, that a lot of World War One was about the Ottoman Empire, because a lot of the power-hungry colonial states were all looking at dividing up the vast territories of the Ottoman Empire, um, which is what led, then in many ways, you know, Begadol to to World War One. In the end, resulted in that France and England um, divided up the Ottoman Empire. Um, so be a as it may, under the, so Chaim and David Ben-Gurion approached the, the, the Ottoman authorities and said, we would like to volunteer Jewish soldiers to join under the Ottoman banner to fight on your behalf as citizens of, um, of the Ottoman Empire. And their request was initially accepted but then, um, um, um his name was uh, Jamal Pasha was in charge of the troops um, when he heard of this, was very upset about this. And in fact, not only did he reject this, but he exiled 18,000 um, Jews living in this area to Egypt. So they, were, they, were, they were exiled from this area, felt they were disloyal, dual standards, all the usual uh, anti-Semitic tropes that, uh, that are associated, and they were, le- they were left in, in Egypt. So these, these folks now in Egypt, which was at this point in time under British control, So we turned to to the British and said, "We want to now fight on your side." And this, in fact, was the this, in fact, was the ideology. um, Who somebody took a bet on the other side, not uh, not um, Mechai Weitzman and not David Ben Gurion, who was on the other side, who said from the beginning we should fight with the British. Zev Jabotinsky, Zev Jabotinsky felt Vladimir Jabotinsky felt that uh, that uh, that the British were the answer. And he and this incident itself led to the realization that clearly the Ottomans are not the right side and so they, they tried with all these refugees to join the, the, the English army. However, the English were not interested whatsoever. Why? Because these are foreign nationals. You don't have foreign nationals fighting in your, na- in your army. So the, the British turned them down. But they were so eager to fight, and they were actually were desperate for soldiers, that they ended up recruiting them in what was called a mule corps. So they allowed them to do transportation along the battlefront. And they recruited, there was about 560 or so of these exiled um, Palestine Jews, who then um, serviced the, the mule corps in the British front in southern Palestine. And they, and, and they in fact, served with distinction. They, were, they, they, they fought in the battle and they were all along the front, they didn't fight, they were, they were along the front and took great risk, at personal risk to themselves to, to fuel the British war effort, and were recognized as such, one of them even receiving a, a, a medallion of honor. Um, at the same time, while this was going on, realizing the success of this, so, um, th- th- by the way, just to clarify the, this point, when that was offered to them, Zev Jabotinsky said, sorry, that's not what we asked for. We didn't ask to carry, to carry, uh, to carry your guns. We asked to fight. Um, and, uh, but however, a person by the name of Joseph Trampledor, no relation, um, did join that and became the, became the leader of that, of, that, um, of that particular unit. Um, so in the meantime, Zev Jabotinsky now travels to England and starts politically fighting for the right to have a, um, a Jewish legion. Uh, which was, again, again, the, uh, there was the British and the, the um, systematic anti-Semitism of the British government itself, which was, uh, which was uh, against this. And there were also many, many Jews in England who were against this, because those who are not Zionist leading or those who are concerned about dual loyalty concerns all fought against us. But Beatrice May, actually, towards the middle, towards the end of the war, they did allow the formation of the British Legion, of, the, of, of, of the, the Jewish Legion under the British. They, create, they created the 38th, 38th Fusiliers, which was a, um, the first of the units, which was, which was recruited mainly from English and American Jews who, who volunteered. And later on, to be followed by the 39th. Uh, which was which was actually from around the world and finally the 40th which was um, w- Which came mainly from um, exiled Palestinian Jews. Yes, Palestinian does not mean the folks who call it that today, but the Jews from Palestine who were exiled by um, Jamal Pasha joined the 40th, but they weren't allowed to act in service and in fact the 39th and the 38th did enter into into battle in 19, late 1917 and 1918 and they fought with distinction. The 38th, um, being involved in a number of victories of the British pushing into Palestine against the, uh, um, the Ottomans as well. Um, they suffered from malaria there afterwards, and, but but be it as it May, they succeeded. And ultimately, when England conquered the, the, the when the Allied powers conquered the Middle East, they stationed these three battalions in the area of what we have as Israel today. And they were there. Um, they, they, they were there essentially as um, the as the British army occupying and creating peace. In the Legion. Now, they were not allowed to have their own flag at the beginning. The British did not call in the Jewish Legion at the beginning. They said, "Let's wait for your success." Once they were successful, then after the war, they were called the Jewish Legion. Although before, and they were allowed to re- wear the Magen David on a widened signal with different colours for the three different the three different legions. The ultimate goal was actually to create a battalion, which would require four legions. But they did not. They didn't. Uh, that the Allenby um, uh, decided against that in the end of the day. And they remained there. They remained in, in the area of Palestine under the British um, until the British decided to um, to close those units. They were, they, initially they wanted to keep them there for the state for safety and stability, um, but a lot of them were volunteers. A lot of them had had businesses. A lot of them worked in England, worked in America, and needed to return to their families. And the English were not interested. And then they 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 suffered anti-Semitism at the hands of the regulars. Of the British Army, who would, the British police would not allow them into Jerusalem, as an example, many of them were court-martialed on on Manousia. But it is anything that happens, you know, with endemic anti-Semitism in any good good establishment, um, and um, and uh, there was, uh, and most of them were in fact uh, um, re- removed, and ultimately, um, the, the, it closed in nineteen nineteen, and uh, that that became the the end of that. Unfortunately, as they took away the presence of the Jewish Legion. In, in Israel. Guess what happened? Exactly what they said wouldn't happen, which is the Arab riots started in 1920 and Jews were killed in the streets. When this happened, a number of those who were part of the Jewish Legion marched with arms to the old city and were arrested and, and imprisoned for for disobedience. Um, because they tried to protect other Jews being killed while the British were doing that and then that happened again in May 19, May 1st 1921 when the riots occurred again and again um, Those who used to be part of the Jewish Legion marched to try to defend the Jews and they were court-martialed and um, and Put in prison for trying to defend Jews. Now, It is important to remember that there's certain patterns that follow in history in general um, and so it, it's it's important to, to appreciate that, uh, that, that, that things, some, some things don't change too much. So we go a little further. Comes In the meantime, what happens is, is that this was a, a source of pride for many Jews and certainly those who dedicated time and their lives to, to, to this. And the flag which was given to them was a, a flag under His Majesty's government, George V. And it was allowed to, after decommissioning, was allowed to be hung in one of the shuls in London as part of His Majesty's government. And there was a decision made um, in 1925, um, to allow the flag to be brought to Israel. To be, well, at this time, Palestine, the British mandate. And the, the, the suggestion to be made to hang it in the greatest synagogue in all of Palestine at the time, which was the Khurva Synagogue. And I should just put the, the picture of you, just to see on the notes over here, there's Zeb Jabotinsky on the bottom left, and that's, um, that, that's Captain Joseph Trampled on the right there. And uh, th- I put on the top of the second page a, uh, a picture. This is a picture of some of the recruits from the Jewish Battalion. And this flag on the top right is what we're talking about over here. This was given to them, um, so to speak, posthumously, right after they were disbanded. Which is Hagadud HaEvri Rishon LaYudan, the first Judeans. This is the flag, and you can see the the menorah in the center over there, the Jewish sign. And it was when the plan was to have it hung in the um, or, um, the colors of the legions were, would be hung in the, the, um, the great synagogue, the Churva um, the synagogue. You can see by its height and stature in the picture on the right, why it is that the Jordanians were so excited about destroying it the second time around, because it really was an incredible edifice. At this point in time, the Kotel did not have a plaza. The Kotel was a little alleyway that the Arabs used to um, run their animals through while the Jews were praying on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That was the, there wasn't much of a place to put it there. So the Khurva was really the central uh, uh, metaphor or sign of success of the Jews. So like to, I'd like to talk about the, the, the installment of this flag um, um, in the Khurva synagogue. And I'd like to go back to really, uh, I want to thank Rabbi Ari Schwat, who published an incredible article on this topic. Rabbi Ari Schwat is the, among many other things, is the menahel of the um, Beit HaRav Cook, the, the Rav Cooks. Museum, which, which is where his old house used to be in Yerushalayim, and he published a book called Harim Et Adegel to raise the flag And he published, which was uh, heretofore not published, the writing of Rav Kook or for the speech he gave at, on Hanukkah In 1925 upon this, the installment of the Gadud Ha'ivri, the Jewish battalion's flag in the Khurva Synagogue. And it's a very beautiful, beautiful um, speech, and I'd like to learn it together with you. Just as, as much as things don't change um, throughout the course of history, it is worthwhile noting that when this suggestion was made, the, the, uh, the individual who was in charge of the British Mandate in Palestine was a man by the name of Lord Herbert Plumer, who is a, actually was a very um, strong uh, force of stability in the region from 1925 to, I believe, 1928 or 1929. And it was under his auspices that they were called the years of quiet. Right, they were, The Arabs did not write. In fact, when, this, uh, the, when the, the, the suggestion was made to hang this flag, to install this flag in the Khurva, the Arab response to this, the Arab council was, if such a thing is done, we cannot take responsibility for the reaction of the Arabs. Right? This is the kind of thing that we hear of here, as if. There is no free will involved in any Arab on the street or the Arab leadership to take responsibility for because they, we cannot stop them killing without anything which they had done before in the early 1920s. And so Lord, it's the same thing today with the embassy. So every, every time you hear this, it's the same language. And, and, uh, and, and uh, Lord Plumer said, you do not need to take responsibility because I will and I'm going to attend the ceremony. And there was quiet and there were no riots. And it's very important to remember that when there's a strong support of Israel, then there's peace. When there's a weak support of Israel by international forces, then there's not peace, and then there's riot. It's important to notice that, 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 that things have not changed over the course of time. And so until 1928, 1929, when Lord Plumer, who was a, uh, was a decorated war hero, what was his name? Um, Lord Herbert Plumer, uh, it's it's, no, it's spelled P L U M E R. And, uh, and, uh, um, and he when he was as a decorated war hero, it was the end of his career of many, many successful, successful battles was in charge. Things were quiet. When he left, guess what happened in 1929? It wasn't just it wasn't just we always think, oh, there was something that occur- occurred then. It was also there was a change of the guard in terms of who was controlling the British mandate. It's important to realize. That these things are really important. We don't we, we forget the, the background in history before the massacres of 1929 in Hebron and in Jerusalem. Be it as it may, let's go back to this moment. The chief rabbi of the of, of Palestine is na- is the individual by, by the name of Rev um, Avram, uh, 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 Avram Yitzchak Hakohen Cook, who is the first chief rabbi of the territories. And he's asked, as a British subject, essentially, because he's uh, under the British mandate, to represent, to, to, um, to speak at this moment, at this special occasion. And he does. He speaks beautifully. In fact, you can see on the letterhead on the bottom left there, he's actually writing with his speech. It's just hard to see. I put it a little too small. Okay, so this is a very beautiful moment where he gets up there and speaks. Now remember, Rav Cook is a Lithuanian goddle. He grew up and he, le- he was a ilui at the times when he learned in the Velozhin yesh- Yeshiva under the Nitziv. And he was a was a a, a, a God, was a genius um, who lived, wrote wrote like many other Lithuanian gourds. He was a in Rov, in Zymel, later in Boisk, Was a, was living the typical life of a of a great Lithuanian um, genius who was publishing and who was thinking. But then he, there, but he was clearly bigger than even that. And as he moved to Israel in. Um, 1904, 1905, to, become, to, to, to ascend the, the chief rabbinate of Yafo and, and the Yeshuvim. We see that just in his visionary perspective is far beyond people in his generation. He, he, people could not even appreciate the, 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 the scope of his perspective. I mean, and and this is important to understand is that we've been living in the diaspora at this point in time for almost 1,900 years. We don't understand what it's like to have national symbols. We don't understand what it's like to live as a nation. We understand what it's like to live as a Jewish community, as a religious community, but we've never experienced the the idea of nationhood. Nobody, none of our grandparents even knew what it meant to be a nation, not our great-grandparents. Rav Cook had the vision to be able to understand what was what was occurring, and was and gave language to it. I'd like to give this as an example of, of that. So we're going to learn together his speech, and it's a very beautiful speech which I think will shape the perspective that we have about Israel. So here is how it goes, and listen to the poetry of his language. We're going to learn it together because I think it's important to see his own language. This is usual. I'm tough. pei hey. So this is 1925. This is on Hanukkah actually. Lord Plumer, so he, he turns to, he, he recognizes that Lord Plumer is in the audience. And he turns to the to the community and to the people who are now part of the battalion, the part of the, the legion. Those who, were, who had served are there. They're actually in present as he presents the, the colors. In our prayer for, the, for today's uh, events, I'm going to present the, the, the Pasuk which applies referring to the flag. Now, just to understand what he means, the prayer, actually Rabbi short in his book presents there is a prayer that Rav Cook composed to be said about the flag. And it's a beautiful prayer, that's what he's referring to. And it goes beautiful. He has a whole prayer. When he wrote about the flag, to be said to, to set out the flag. He recognized the national and the spiritual significance, that's what he's referring to. And he says, in that prayer, the pasuk I used to, to be the, the foundation of that prayer was the, 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 was the pasuk which talks about flags in Tanakh. What's that pasuk? I think what pasuk talks about flags? So here's what he said, we say it every single day. let us rejoice in your salvation, let us, in the, in the name of Hashem, Nidgol, Yemale Hashem kol me let Hashem um, fulfill all your aspirations. What's, why is this related to the flag? Nidgol. No. nidgol. Yes. So some people read this as nigdol, which they, they switch the letters, that's incorrect. It's not from the word gadol, it's from the word yes. Dagel. Yes. So therefore he is saying, uvshem elokeinu, in the name of Hashem, Nidgol, let us raise the banner. That's what's being referred to over here. Now he's going to explain what this means. Iz a'qim ya my dear brothers, anahnu yukhallim bit sadak lemor bago on we are able to say radiously and in pride sh'a hakara hay hi akhagiget that this recognize this celebratory recognition sh'amufutahas but suran el atza ledagel twai which is now celebrating this, this this cerebral moment of the installation of the flag hubayat zenob tora barashis hada adem sh'a khilanu ledroikh albamos to the sene betsua seno this is, actually goes back. This is not a new event. This goes well, all the way back from the moment that our ancestors left Egypt and are walking by Midbar in the desert to, 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 to um, um, inherit this land. Which was given to us as an eternal inheritance. Right. Now remember Rav Kook is attaching this event now to the arc of a long history. Right, This is our land. Hashem gave it to us. And having a flag was part of that, as you know. As we established a military organization. What was that military organization? As we read in Parshas, by from 20 years old, that was, when, that was when the people were inducted into, conscripted into service. That was when the men were counted. The 600,000 were of military age men. From 20 to 60. Oz, at that point, 3,000 years ago, before all the complicated military details that we have today, as at that point, before all the complicated military details that we have today, Oz, um, at that point, the Torah tells us the importance of having a flag for a legion. Each person, each group has to have a flag to establish where they serve, where they camp, and what they do. That's Surah a So first, he's addressing, I think, perhaps all the little skeptics in the back of our mind saying, ah, "Why do we need a flag? What the relevance is this? Is where the flag comes here or not? We've never seen a flag. I learn Gemara; I don't see flags." So, the, so says, well, the Torah talks about it, the first time that we were trying to go to Israel and you can clearly see that he's mirroring what's happening now. He's saying we're also going to Israel which is our, our voice and in order to get there we need to have organization like the flags. And So let us understand that we, 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 are, we are attached to a long arc of history, that's number one. Then he says but it goes back even further, it's not simply an instrumental military necessity. He says it is a spiritual necessity. What does that mean? So here he goes he goes deeper. Again, this is this is the spiritual world of Rav Cook. Listen to what he does. He says, Tochad, al What is this emotional welling up, this spiritual welling up about the appreciation of the flag? He says there's a beautiful allegorical medrash. Yofer no uim na'im v'kadosh, which is beautiful and holy, shemimenu nuchal gamatol ledaloyis peninim harouiyim laiyoyis kasherim el nishmasenu, that we can draw up from it gems which we can associate with our souls, bekesher lakavod va'achiba connected to the honor and the endearment, shiyesh ba'gam kein kavei kadosha, shanu margishim v'yachas le'adegel hatsvai hazeh biyichud gedudenu hakaviv which will allow us to appreciate the role of what this battalion is doing and its holy purpose. <speaking in Hebrew> which we're putting into this holy house today. Then remember, if you were to ask your average you know, Jewish leader at this time, does a flag belong in the shul, they'd say, a <laughs> flag in a shul, what nonsense is that? Flags are, flags belong to those parading in the streets, those who are devoid of Torah and mitzvahs and shuls of Mamakam kadosh." Sama, or Rav understood that there was something to talk about here, that there's something holy about this flag that belongs in a shul as well. Just so you understand, understand the, what he's saying over here. And this is what the Medrash says about our ancient military flag. Says he, has, he quotes the Medrash. This is a quotation. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu appeared on, on the har Sinai, Yoradnush, in my river voice, Shal Malachim, Tens of thousands of angels appeared and descended with him, Shneem Rechav, Elohim Rebo Saim Alfei Quoting Apostle Kinti relating to Har Sinai, Asuim And all of them were in legions and they had their own flags. Kevin Shiroo, some Yisrael, Shem Asuim His Degolem, misavim le Israel saw the angelic host and said, We want to also have flags. We should be like the angels and have flags. You want flags? You want to become flags, literally? You want to become flags? By your life, I'm going to allow your, your, your request. Right, the midrash. Also knew this pasuk was referring to the flag, <laughs> right? The is, that's where Cook is drawing it from. I'm going to give you, allow you a banner to demonstrate our kodesh baruch hu. Make flags as they requested. So where did the dgalim come from? It wasn't simply because of military organization and instrumental, because it's helpful to know which, which group we are going to follow. It was in fact a replica of Matantar. the angels on high. Matantar. That's what let's that, see for the see medrash. Let's go a little further. Let's unpack this medrash. Now let now we now we get into a very deep idea. He says the following: Hadegel HaIdeali, the ideal flag, the ideological flag, Shelanu is taken, from its 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 ancient foundation, it comes as a reflection of the spiritual aura, the spiritual energy that was directed towards us at this moment, which has never been replicated in all of history, national revelation. At the time that it came to us, a whole nation, at the moment that we went from slavery to freedom, through which the light went to all of the earth through that moment of Sinai. Through that national revelation. As we, at the moment that we received this incredible, well, we we'll were called storehouses, the the values of the Torah, the for ourselves and for the rest of humanity. We're going to see this universalistic, particularistic theme of, um, expand in just a moment. As, at that moment, all eternal values were, were, were shone upon us at that moment. On one side we know, we We realize the value of the human being. What does the human being mean? An expression, a little piece of our Kodesh Baruch Hu in this world. The, 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 the value, the splendor of each individual. And the greatness of the splendor of the, um, of the, the, the soul of the entire nation. Which is called which Hashem created in this world. So notice he, he's scoped out there. There's the, 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 at the moment of Ha'asinah we realize the value of every soul, we re- realize the value of our nation, and we realize the value of humanity. So he's, 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 he's zooming out in terms of this. Let's, let's zone in on this as well. Remember, it's, it's, it's so hard to find this balance because you'll see sometimes in, in the different parts of the Jewish world at large today, there are those who, uh, um, who, who might say, who, 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 might, uh, <coughs> who might be of the universalistic perspective. Those, unfortunately, many, many of whom are devoid of Torah observance in traditional Judaism, who are very universalistic and ideals of the whole world and, 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 and being uh, caring for everyone and every human being. Then you have those who are very particularistic, and they're very much observant in Torah and mitzvah to, to a large degree, but they don't have the sensitivity to anybody outside of their Dalad amos or perhaps even way of dress. Um, it's it's very very unique, very very laser thin as as to how they are. You know, I, I know I, 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 I have family members in Jerusalem who grew up in a different system, and they, you know, Jews who don't wear kippah are called goyim. You know, I'm saying like it's, it's, it's a very different kind of, the particularism and the universalism don't seem to mix. Now, Cook is able to live with both of those at the same time. And Listen to the way he expresses that in this moment. And this is such a beautiful paragraph. He says, We have learned to, and to understand right? the cosmopolitan ideal. Or the, um, of, of multiculturalism. Biyosha shidchit ve-nevo amides rak ala aracha klalis shela adam bi-chalalus When you just have universalism, cosmopolitanism, um, by itself, b'lo yavchanas shela rechush ha-gadol miyuchad lekol am lekol geza, Without the realization that every nation has, and every race has its own unique contribution to the tapestry of life, machshavu zulu tavil olam es abracha va-alokis. You're not going to find bracha when everybody is just the same. You need to understand that every person or every nation has uniqueness. Therefore, we realize We have a unique soul, the nation of Israel, which we have to herald. We have to raise that banner because we are something which is special and chosen to the rest of the world. Veshekol ha'chayenu m'surim le'tipucha. All of our life is dedicated to expressing that. Lishmirasa to guard it, beotzem tarasa in its in its purity. L'nitzor mikol mishmar es segulaseh to appreciate its treasure. Ki liveyisem li segula you're going to be a treasure. So we have to recognize and look inside that Jews are special, they're unique, they're chosen. That's why God chose us. We can't apologize for that. We need to express that and project that and protect that. On the other hand, we also live with another thought in a different pocket. Hashem's spirit is present with every nation, with every race, with every people. HaGosh Baruch created them, and Hashem wants them to fulfill their purpose. Hashemikulam yachad that together with all of them tispaer haharmonia haniflaa, shel asher yotzer adam And together, all of that comes together to show the splendour of God in the world. Right? You don't hear these types of thoughts. Being merged so often, it's much easier to live in broad strokes and extremes. Rav Kook lives with a synthesis. And by the way, just to deepen this, Rav Kook's idea in the mission when it says "Ezehu Chacham Adam," the way that Rav Cook understands that is that wisdom is not found in one silo. Wisdom cannot be found only in one nation. Which means to get the, the glory of what it means, real wisdom, you need to be able to look to every nation to be able to find that. That's a It's a broad understanding. That's a very broad understanding of what that Mishnah means. is that wisdom is dispersed. And he's saying you can't ignore all the places dispersed. That's part of the bigger picture coming together. Just understand the scope of his vision over here. This is not not small-minded. This is not granular. He's looking at horizons that people at his time certainly couldn't even understand to a large degree. Then he goes on further. He says, He says, now we can understand a little bit of the reason for a flag. And forever, and it, we go back to that moment, we look at a flag, and we go back to that moment where Hashem spoke to us through that fire at Arsinii. That was given through the fire, it was given with the angelic host that were all in all these legions. At that moment we realized that the, the richness of life is multicolored, is, is, is composite. Because that's how it came down, in a composite reality. With multi-colors. Which had different facets to it. It wasn't monolithic when the Torah came down itself. Which were all coming down through this, this so to speak, tapestry, this collage, which came through emuna, Mada, Musar, Dat, Ava, Gvura, Yofi, voice, Ideali, Kodesh, Ein Sefuros, Koele. That through multiple, thousands of values is how the Torah expressed itself. Godliness can be found in religion, in Musar, in science, in emuna. All of these were and that's what it means. They were river voice, hasho, That the divine ideal could not be captured in one bucket. It was being expressed in multiple different ideas as it came down to this world. As Hashem's ideas came down to this world. we called Big degel, kudshoy, kudshoy, And that's why each one had a different flag to represent the different idea that, of the divine that it was bringing down to this world. And when we wanted that, we were looking towards that. And therefore, says Rav what is the greatest way to find our Kodesh Baruch Hu in this world, therefore, is the next paragraph, which is. How do you find godliness then? Is when you pull that all back together is when you see it as it was given, when you're able to see all the flags, not hanging onto your flag as if that was the only way God-given truth and everything else is, is, is gone. He says, peace shall call Peace allows all the flags to come together, all the ideas of godliness which are expressed in this world. I shall call which each battalion and each legion knows how to express its one, because that's what it was endowed with. We want peace, but the peace is associated with the harmony of all these pieces. And that's what allows us, the spiritual repository, to be able to express what the importance of this flag is. through them Through us, the rest of the world can see this incredible wonder which is that despite the fact that the Jewish people has been scattered among many, many nations and has been distanced from our land, for centuries, we still exist. We still have that that, national fervor. that We still are attached to that moment of Sinai, still carrying that idea with us. El amen to our people, and to our Holy Land. We are the microcosm, of the, of the story of peace and harmony between all the nations. If you think about this, when he's talking, Jews at this point in time are speaking tens and tens of different languages around the world, all still davening in the same shuls, all still keep, meaning that is, the so to speak, the microcosm of all the nations coming together, is all the Jews coming together. Chazon and Nevi'einu, the, prophet, the the vision of our prophets, our holy prophets, who lit up the life, which lit, uh, for all the human beings under the heaven, and with that realization of the flag that we bear to the rest of the world as the ambassador to the rest of the world, but to. And that is expressed in our nationalism. Now remember, you could just say that Jewish nationalism is simply a reflection of the 19th century nationalism in Europe and the movements of all the different countries to express their nationalism. And the Jews as well wanted to have a country just like the Germans and just like the, uh, all, all the other nations that were fighting for the nationalism which ultimately led to, uh, to World War I. It says says Rav no no, 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 there's something in that calling which is different. There's something in the Jewish calling which is spiritual too. And it was the British who noticed this the first, who realized the national symbolism, or the, the spiritual moment, this watershed moment of allowing us to return to our house. And he's referring to the Balfour Declaration just eight years earlier by recognizing they are part of the coming together, of the, the process of finding that truth in the world again. Very, very powerful, very, very esoteric, very beautiful. And now he goes into more, 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 this paragraph here, I think lays the framework, the next paragraph, for language which we've not yet seen in Jewish history up to this point in time for 1,900 years, and you have to think about the, the, the idea of this, the, what he's straddling. On the one hand, as a British subject, as a part of the British mandate, recognizing the British government. On the other hand, recognizing the fact that there can be a Jewish soldier again. There can be a fact that there is a Jewish soldier. Remember, cook passed away in the year 1935. He never lived to see the state of Israel at, um, actually come into fruition. But he gave the language for it. And listen to what he, what he says here. He says, Vakara d'Iglis, And the recognition of this flag, of this banner, Hamekudeshes which is so holy, he l'ruach That's what these people are looking for. Those people in Cairo, Zev Jabotinsky in London, all those people are coming together to to to, to, uh, to, uh, to agitate and to and to uh, to uh, um, beg for uh, the government for the sake. Psych- Deep down, you know what they were saying. They were saying this. They were saying what Bnei was saying at Har Sinai: "Is we want to come together. We want to do something bigger. There's a bigger mission that we're carrying out." And that's why Hashem allowed the spirit of George V to be allowed to this. Now, what, what pasuk is he quoting as he says this? First pasuk in Sefer Ezra, it talks about ruach melech pras. As Cyrus the Great was allowed, so Rakuk is clearly attaching Tanakh-esque, you know, we're called Biblical proportion moments to George's recognition of this, right? you understand what's, what's happening here? Allowing the, British, the, Jewish, the Jewish Legion is, is, is seen in, in Biblical pro- pro- proportions. <speaking> in <Hebrew> to honor us in Palestine with this flag. <speaking in Hebrew> Which is, it's, its memory is very holy to us. Lo Ulam Lonukalishka Soya shall heas hear the or hakoida shashemile and the shamas shabonenu hatirim. We cannot forget the holy passion of our sons as they came. To conscript to, uh, themselves, who wanted so desperately to conquer the land of our forefathers by enlisting in the army? Do you know that, at its height, when in 1918, the Jewish Legion, made up of these three regiments, was in fact 5,500 strong. Okay, so 5,500 strong, but there were well over 10,000 applicants from across Europe who wanted to, and they were denied. They did not want to make it uh, to, uh, too big. So when he's talking about it, we're not talking about a few hundred people. We're talking about over 10,000 young men who wanted to be part of this, uh, this, this Jewish legion. Which is what has been hidden to the last generation was this Holy Spirit of Passion to become part of this. Like holy armies, when I, they seemed to me like people willing to sacrifice their lives to, to, to protect their brothers and sisters and to enter the land of Israel. Remember, Rav Cook was invited to be one of the keynote speakers at the Agudah Convention in 1914. It was supposed to be in September 1914, so he traveled to Switzerland. But it wasn't such a good time to travel at the time because World War I, World war I broke out. And therefore, he was stranded in neutral Switzerland. And he, and he taught Torah and he was a rov there for a couple of years. Thereafter, moving to England, managing to get passage to England. And he spent the, spent the remaining years of the war and there afterwards in England. He was involved in part of the movement towards the Balfour Declaration. At the time when he was actually in England, and he says, I visited the Jewish Legion in Plymouth. And when I saw them, it seemed to me like, like he said, like the Malachia Shares, meaning to see that a Jew could want so much to protect their brothers and go back to the land of Israel. They may think it's for military nationalistic ideas. I'm telling you, deep down in their soul, there's something else going on. There's a much bigger, and this is Rav Cook's general view of things. I see these secular people and these people who are, you don't keep Shabbos and don't want people to keep Shabbos and. And they want to, to sacrifice their lives to drain swamps and to, <coughs> to protect their brothers and sisters. He says, there's a very deep spirit, a spiritual mechanism that they themselves don't even know is going on over here. That's what a cook sees over here going on. And then he says, because of these, these holy memories that to express them to make them real we were sent here hoymala sochatzar <coughs> to world we plummer ani sova eljon le'eretz israel who was sent to israel ye cholim anachnu bezedek we are able to say in truth ala degelatz vehi hazeh amed be'makom kadosh ze this holy flag which stands in this holy place she'yignonos boile mishmer selmei which should be here for eternity which unfortunately was not true because the jordan jordanians destroyed the khurva the second time round in 1948 upon conquering the Old City. Should, when we look at this flag and this shul, we should remember that deep passion of those young men who wanted to do something bigger. Who wanted to express their godliness in this world through this. And that's what I, why I quote this pasuk. Let us rejoice in your salvation. Let us raise the banner of, your, of our Kodesh Baruch Let the Redeemer come to Zion. Amen. Which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think, folks, Rabbi Isai, it gives us the language and appreciation for where we are today, 98 years later. Thank you so much.